You're listening to the Binge Media Podcast Network on BingeMedia.net. And now, the Binge Aftertaste. This review of Split, part of the Binge Movie Aftertaste, M. Night Shyamalan Retrospective. You like to make fun of us, but we're more powerful than you think. Join Garrett, Matt, and the returning Mike Ganeri as they look at the entire span of Shyamalan's work. And this will be one of the few times left I can drive you guys around. From that little-known e-weekly emission, The Sixth Sense, all the way through his new release, Old, coming out July 23rd, the boys look at all the signs of what makes Shyamalan possess one of the most fascinating careers in the history of Hollywood. Rejoice! Why did Shyamalan become the black sheep and not join his family in the doctor's profession? You are different from the rest. When did everything go wrong? Can't you see? I am not human. And why the hell did Mike not see the sixth sense until this retrospective? Have you seen him? The answers to all these questions and more, all coming up courtesy of Binge Media. But you don't need to worry. I'm going to take care of you. Split! Released January 20th, 2017, budget was $9 million, box office a whopping $278.5 million, and this was directed by the, at this point, very comeback-heavy M. Night Shyamalan. All right, boys, The Visit comes out, he digs into his own pocket, and studios are like, yeah, we're not going to touch this, so M. Night was like, fuck you then, I'll go ahead and fund it myself. He releases it, boom, thing becomes a massive hit. And then he decides that this will be his next film. A sequel to a movie from 16 years before. Mike, sir, when this was being released, did you know this was a spiritual sequel to Unbreakable? I know you said you had seen this. Did you see this in theaters? What is your history with Split? You know, I'm trying to remember exactly when... Like, I'm trying to remember the exact timeline. I saw this in theaters. It was a new release. I didn't see it, like, opening night or anything like that, but it was pretty fresh. I have heard that there was some sort of crazy twist or fact about it. Something, I knew that there was something about it that was kind of incredible. And from the, the way that people talked about it, I realized that it wasn't just, like, a plot thing, that it was there was something kind of metafictional. Not metafictional. What's the word I'm looking for exactly? Just that it was something that went beyond the scope of the film itself, that there was something that was really blowing people's minds about it. But I didn't, I was like, well, damn, I want to see that because I thought it looked like a good movie and I like James McAvoy and I thought that it seemed like a good one. So I saw it. I don't know what point I figured that 
Bruce Willis was going to show up. But when he did, I was like, all right, I'm on board. I don't want to give away too much of where I'm going to be going in this episode, but uh, this film uh, got me uh, on the M. Night Shyamalan train for at least a period of time. Wow. And by the way, you did give that away for people who listen to the Sixth Sense podcast. You said that you loved this film. So we'll see if that still holds up. Listen, that was months yeah. ago. I don't know what happened then. No one remembers. Matt, you weren't as high on the visit as me and Mike were. You hear that Split's coming out. Did you know it was a spiritual sequel? Did you care? Did you see this in theaters? So I have a funny history with this movie. Number one, I had no idea that it was going to be connected whatsoever. And that's for two reasons. One, I did not care about this movie whatsoever. I read the announcement right after the visit that came out that Shyamalan's next movie was going to star James McAvoy playing someone with 23 personalities. And I'm like, oh, no, Shyamalan is going for the Oscar. This is his vanity project with James McAvoy. Because when I read that, that's immediately what I thought about. And two, it was not mentioned in the trailers. It was not publicized whatsoever that this had any ties at all. It was not even marketed as a quote-unquote twist movie. Speaking of the marketing, I went to Fantastic Fest this year in uh, 2016. I was working for the young folks at the time. And I was at the world premiere with Shyamalan in attendance. That was really cool because he came out, he said, hey, I hope you guys enjoyed my movie. He sort of did like a little Q&A beforehand, but he, he was very coy because someone asked him, is there a twist? Because that's the code answer. I'm sure he gets asked that with every single press junket or what have you that he does. And to be honest, as excited as I was, I was just exhausted because everyone who thinks that they can watch movies and report on them for a week think that's easy. It's not. To provide a little bit more context, I had watched Arrival that week that premiered. I had seen The Handmaiden, which is three hours in Korean, so you really have to pay attention to that. I had seen A Monster Calls came out during the festival. And I saw the special screening for both Tim Burton's new movie and the Ash vs. Evil Dead premiere with Bruce Campbell in attendance. So I, I got my sci-fi and horror vibe. And that's kind of what I thought this movie was going to be. I thought it was Shyamalan. If The Visit was a hybrid of horror and comedy, I thought this was his full-on horror film. Yeah. It reminds me of, you guys remember the 90s? Mike, sort of, you and I don't. I'm saying this to be an asshole to get it. <laughs> You remember there was that, one of my favorite subgenres is the stalker slash fatal attraction person that you just cannot escape. Yeah, like the. I thought that's what this movie was gonna. Yeah, yeah like the blank, yeah, like, like the was, like the blank from hell, right? Like the nanny from hell, the hand that rocks the cradle, yeah, the cop like, from hell, unlawful and, entry, that kind of thing. Y- yuppie horror. Yeah. Yeah, where it's like somebody you would encounter in your life. Yeah. But it's only your life if you're like a middle class, uh-huh. like comfortable. Like, yeah. you know, like what's right. that one where Michael Keaton is the tenant from hell? Pacific Heights. Anyway, Pacific getting Heights. off on a tangent. Pacific yeah, Pacific Heights. That's the one, yeah. I thought this was Shyamalan's take on that because it looked to me like he was stalking them from the trailers. I thought they had some kind of symbiotic connection where this guy just wouldn't leave them alone. So my expectations were pretty, you know, I was just vibed. But at the same time, I was just fucking tired. And as long as it was a good movie, I was going to be happy. So I was very excited with what I was sitting in that theater. And oh my God, when the big revelation hit, Fantastic Fest, the audiences are very, when I was there, they're very respectful. People lost their minds. You would think it was like Captain America picking up the hammer. It was like that, that level when you got to the post credit scene. But we'll we'll save that for the end. Wow. 
Wow. That sounds like the right audience for that. Like, you know yeah. what I mean? Like, because I was watching it earlier today, and I was like, I, because I had seen Unbreakable before I knew who Bruce Willis was in that scene, but like, I, I was just imagining, like, who is somebody who's just like, oh, Bruce Willis popped up at the end. <laughs> He's enjoying a cup of coffee. Nice. Good for Bruce. And I, like, they don't get what's going on. Yeah, he left his day job working at a, at a mechanic shop, working on cars all day. But the thing about Fantastic Fest, it is the Sundance for hardcore genre fans. So yeah. they're. They are exactly the ones who are in tune with, I don't want to call Unbreakable a cult movie by any means, but it's not the sixth sense. So it was really cool that everyone was cognizant and had knowledge of Unbreakable. So I think that definitely helped. I'm not sure how it would have played if I saw it, I don't know, at a showcase cinemas with 30 other people and none of them have seen Unbreakable. <laughs> yeah. Wow. That's quite a background. You you never told me you saw this at a Fantastic Fest. Wow. Well, it took years to cover Shyamalan. That's true. So. That's true. This movie was paid for by his profits from the visit. So once again, he had to kind of fight for this. And, you know, I respect filmmakers who do this kind of stuff. You know, people could give Lucas all the hell they want. But the fact that he was able to get his vision out there without really much backing is pretty remarkable. And Shyamalan is kind of riding those waves here. He had a really bad part of his career where he, and we covered him, three movies Four, maybe, if that were just so bad that he couldn't get out of that rut. He went to blockbuster filmmaking. It went horribly wrong. Is it safe to say that if The Visit wasn't a hit, that could have been the end of M. Night, right, guys? I mean, he could have been stuck writing Stuart Littles for the rest of his life. I think it would have been the last gasp. I equate The Visit to make a Rocky analysis. The film dumb was Clubber Lang, and they put him on the canvas multiple times, and The Visit was him getting up at the count of nine. So it was like his last shot. And I'd say The Visit is the equivalent of landing a bunch of really good body blows, where you don't get the knockout punch, which is why I gave it a six, but there was enough fight left to where he warranted you know, one more round. I was not expecting a boxing analogy on a M. Night podcast. Nice. Well, Unbreakable would be a great name for a boxer, you know, nickname. There you go. It's not like The Visit got raves across the board or anything like that, but you're right that the, it got the exact kind of reaction that he needed to stay in the game, in that some people liked it a lot, some people didn't like it as much, but they were recognizing that this wasn't M. Night on autopilot or M. Night sort of just spinning his wheels or anything like that. Like, this was kind of him getting, in a way, getting back to the basics, but also kind of breaking away from what people had expected from him. And then, like you said earlier, this is him going, really leaning into the horror. I mean, I the visit was horror, like you said, crossed with comedy. And then this is just, I mean, this is so right down the middle. I, I think that that's kind of what he figured out that would be really good for people to want from him is, team up with Blumhouse and be a horror filmmaker and drop some of the pretensions, but keep enough of them that people can still recognize him as M. Night, which we'll get into later. And I think that he succeeds here. And I don't know if we should get right into it just yet or not, but um, this is a film that I actually wrote about this film in grad school. I wrote oh, a really? paper on this film. Yeah, it was about this film and Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt. The idea of, like... Yeah, right. The idea it was sort of like, you know, you got these two things that both kind of came out around the same time about women being abducted and locked in underground bunkers by lunatic men. And it was like, I was like, so why is this suddenly something that society is looking at? And like, why is it you can make a horror movie out of it and you can make a comedy show out of it? And it's like both of those things can connect audiences. I don't really remember what the conclusion I came to was in that paper, but it did okay. Anyways, I, that was kind of a tangent. If we're going to mention this film, then we should probably mention that. Anyways, oh, wow. sorry. 
That's crazy. <laughs> you, you guys mentioned Bruce Willis showing up at the end of this. M. Night had to fight for that. Let's not forget Unbreakable was released by Touchstone Pictures. Touchstone was a division sure. of Disney. So he had to go to Disney and get the rights before he went out on his own and did this. Wow. Pretty remarkable he was able to accomplish that. Yeah, that is impressive. Mm-hmm. This I hadn't even I hadn't even thought about that, mm-hmm. but you're right. Yeah, this thing was a massive hit, as I said at the beginning of this podcast, and I think the reason being, M Night was able to make this stand out on its own. Yes, Bruce Willis shows up, uh, as Mike says, having a cup of coffee at the end of this, but it, it, it ties this and Unbreakable together. Audiences came to see an abduction film, and Knight was able to kind of bring them in without everyone knowing this was indeed part of the M Night universe, and more specifically, the East Rail trilogy, which I still say months later, this is just a terrible name but we'll we'll go with it so yeah the fact that he was able to do this again just a remarkable feat from a guy whose ego was completely out of control not 10 years before and now he's able to accomplish this gotta give the guy credit there was a four month gap or like three and a half months between fantastic fest and the movie being released it did not leak whatsoever yeah no yeah that's true were there stipulations that i might say don't say anything or did you have to sign anything when you went in i didn't have to sign an nda or anything like that but he said hey in case something happens, don't ruin it. It was sort of like a gentleman's agreement. Wow, and it did that's not awesome. and it did not get out. That's, that's incredible. I love that that cuz that's the audience. They're like, we don't want to ruin this for people. Yeah. I that's great. I can't think of another movie that does something like this. I mean, I guess the similar thing which was something that genuinely like changed the industry and everything is Sam Jackson showing up at the end of the first Iron Man, but that's different because that's something where even if nobody knew going into it that this was going to be the start of a shared universe, that was a possibility that could be at least reasonably expected. Whereas this is just, you see one movie and then you find out at the end of it that it's a sequel to a completely yeah. different movie. I mean, I can't think of another thing that does something like that. The only one I can think of that is kind of similar as far as a character showing up at a sort of unrelated movie is when Michael Keaton shows up at out of sight playing the character he played in Jackie Brown. Oh, that is fun, yeah. yeah. Or uh, fucking uh, Ralph Bellamy and uh, Don Amechi showing up in uh, Coming to America. Oh, there you go. <laughs> Two old guys. Nice. But it's not like that was setting up a third movie where, like, yeah. <laughs> uh, Billy Ray Valentine and uh, Prince uh, Akeem were going to team up and take down Mortimer and whatever his name is. You pulled those names out of the hat. Wow, Billy Ray Valentine. I did not even remember that. I almost got all four of them. I was so, I was like, holy shit, am I doing this? I was like, Billy Ray, Akeem, Mortimer. And I was like, I blanked on the, <laughs> the, the second white guy's name. You know, I don't know what it was, but anyways. One more, uh, one more tidbit before we get into the plot here. I, I, I did not see this in theaters. I think the reason being is this was getting some pretty decent reviews. And as this retrospective has proven, I like M. Night when he and his ego are kind of off the page and I get to see a train wreck happen on screen. <laughs> but I eventually caught up with it. And Pete even asked me to do a commentary for this very site a few years ago, which I did. But that was the last time I'd seen this before I watched it for this review, making my number of viewings before this review add up to two. So this isn't something I revisit too often. All right, boys, we ready? We, we've kind of dived in a little bit. Wow, we got quite a bit of background on this before we've gotten to this point. Let's go ahead and just dive into this plot, because I'm sure Mike is really anxious to talk about this. So we see Anya Taylor-Joy. She's in a mall. And right away, I'm extremely happy that we are seeing her in something other than that, whatever it was we saw her at the end of last year, Matt. I don't remember what that movie was, but um, I am so glad that we are not seeing her in an X-Men movie. I'm a big fan of this girl, as I said in that show. She was just coming off The Witch here, and I love that 
M. Night lingers on this girl because we know right away this is going to probably be our main focus, right, guys? I mean, yeah. I mean, and she's somebody who is just like, she has just such a compelling screen presence. You know what I mean? You can just, she can not say a word and you still follow her and you follow what she's doing and you can see sort of what she's thinking, essentially. And you can sense the fear or vulnerability or whatever whatever emotion she's projecting in, her, in a certain scene. She's just got that, like, star quality. Mm-hmm. I kind of compare her. She's kind of like the new Mary Elizabeth Winstead. Remember Winstead was, no matter what the quality of the product was, she was so likable and that people would talk about just how cool of a chick she was. I, I think Joy kind of fills that void, at least for me. She's just so awesome. Even in New Mutants, I really railed against that movie. She had a horrible Russian accent in that movie. You know, I like her in, no matter what I see her in. It's pretty obvious she's going to be the only survivor of the three because a i don't recognize the other two and b she's the outsider which tends to be a prominent character in Shyamalan's movies in fact he literally shoots her far away from everyone else and there's even a line where it's like i only invited her out of guilt because i don't want to make her the only person in my art class which like this is such to quote cinema sins third degree bullshit <laughs> it's like the one kid on your on your street even though you don't want to it's kind of like that Hey, Haley Lou Richardson from Columbus is what I, I know her from. The yeah, I knew her. Small I, independent film that she's fantastic yeah, in. Yeah, she's, and a couple other She's things. great in that. She's also great in a movie, a really underrated film called The Edge of Seventeen. She's mm-hmm. good in that. I haven't seen that one. Oh, it's, a, it's, it's really good. So we're hearing that Casey has a tendency to yell at teachers. She gets a lot of detention. And when they go out to the car, I love how M. Night films this. If you've seen the trailers, you know an abduction is coming. And the way he kind of slow zooms in into this car, we are feeling like it could happen any time now. And it's kind of weird that the other girls, they're playing on their phones. They're not really paying attention. But Joy is the one who's like looking and we know that she knows what's going to happen here in a little bit. Totally. I mean, this opening scene is so well-directed, I think. It, it's so tense and just kind of perfectly done. And when I was watching it, I was thinking about how Shyamalan, it's almost Spielberg-esque, where like he knows exactly where to put the camera to have you focus on Anya Taylor-Joy, because she's going to be the, the main character and our, our point-of-view character in the thing. He knows just when to sort of cut away from the thing. I like the sh- shot where she sees the takeout boxes fall to the ground from the side mirror uh-huh. of the car and stuff like that. And just like little hints, the fact that we don't see McAvoy into the car, but we just cut. It's a reverse shot from t- Ani Taylor-Joy to him. He's where the dad was, but now he's sitting in the car. I think that's just expertly done. It's so, I, this movie hooked me from the first scene. I gotta say, like I, I, I saw this and I was like completely on board. And I, I think that, the skill that Shyamalan has when he's on fire, when he's when he's really cooking with gas, is just fantastic. I think the guy's a natural director who sometimes gets a little too caught up in his own fixations or pretensions, but when he's not got those, he is just absolutely fantastic. And this is the, this opening scene is part of it. Wow. I think it's really well directed as far as the way the camera slowly pans to him getting in the driver's seat. My only question is, I get their teenagers self-absorbed on their phones, but he's in the car for a good 30 seconds and before they realize, oh shit, that's not my dad. Yeah, but when you're in your own little world, it, it takes a lot to, to distract you from it. You know, I go everywhere with headphones on. I'll walk through the mall. I'll have them on. And I've had friends of mine. I, I went, I'll go to their houses, and they'll come up to me. As I'm getting out of the car, they'll be, like, right behind me the entire time. And they'll look at me and say, yeah, you can. Uh, you could probably get mugged one of these times if you don't pay attention to what's going on around you. So in a way, I kind of understand it. But these girls don't have headphones on. You're right, Matt. It's a little bit of a stretch to think that this guy would be in this car this long and them not recognizing it. M. Night stretches it out. 
out just enough for me to kind of hint on unbelievability. So the guy at the car asks if he can help someone coming towards him, and sure enough, there's McAvoy in the driver's seat. Matt, you and I have reviewed him in a number of X-Men films, and you seem to be a bigger fan of him out of the two of us. Let's just go ahead and get this out of the way. What do you think of James McAvoy in this multi-dimensional part? Well, let me just say, I like James McAvoy in pretty much everything he's ever been in. I don't think I really disliked him. He's made some crappy movies, like those later X-Men yeah. movies. That's not his fault. But with that said, I would be very curious because this was originally with Joaquin Phoenix playing yes. this character. Uh, yeah. Or characters, I should say. And I'm kind of glad he went with James McAvoy because yes. he doesn't get these kind of showy parts lately. Or at all, because before X-Men, he was always in the background. And between Professor X and Magneto, Magneto's a lot showier of a role, because the villains are always more fun to play in. Xavier always has to be very stern, and except for Dark Phoenix, where he's just an asshole. But I think he's very, very good in this movie. I'm not going to go so far as to say Oscar snub or anything like that, because I do think... There's one personality that gets a little bit too much screen time, but for the ones that we get, most of them are pretty convincing. I think the big ones that we get, like Barry, Dennis, and Patricia, I think all three of those are pitch perfect. Patricia especially, because he doesn't play Mrs. Doubtfire, which would have been the obvious take to do. And everything with the physicality and the body language. I think if Joaquin Phoenix played this role, it would just be what he did with Joker. Yeah, exactly the thought I had. I also don't know how differently he would have played all the different personalities. Because as great of an actor as Joaquin Phoenix is, I even said this with Joker. That's pretty much just a combination of you were never really here in the master. It's a hybrid of past performances. I feel like McAvoy's tapping into stuff he's never gotten to do before. I agree with that. I, I'm, I'm a big McAvoy fan. I, I pretty much always liked him. He, I think, has a real, there's like a sense of fun, I think you get it when you see him in, in a movie. I, coming from him, what's the comparison I would make? So, like, Gene Siskel used to um, talk about how he once interviewed George C. Scott, and he asked George C. Scott, what's a sign of a great performance? And one of the things that George C. Scott says is that when you're watching a great performance, not only do you see the character, but if you look very closely and you look into the eyes of the actor, you can see a twinkle because they're having a fun time doing it. And I don't know if I agree with that in every context or whatever, but I feel like there's some, some element of that in James McAvoy. I get a sense of enjoyment in his performances. And I think that's actually a good comparison because, like you said, Joaquin Phoenix was the person who was originally meant to play this part. And that makes a lot of sense in a lot of ways. He's worked with M. Night before, and he specializes in playing these kind of psychotic or crazy or just extreme characters. But Phoenix, I think, I'm almost starting to get a little sick of him these days because there's something that's just kind of self-serious about his performances. And sometimes that works and sometimes it doesn't. There is a real kind of theatrical sense of play in McAvoy's performance here that I really like. And he, he goes very big, but I think it's appropriate for a lot of these different characters that he's playing. And I think that he makes some really bold choices as an actor here. And uh, you talk about that you wouldn't you wouldn't go so far as to call this an Oscar snub. I don't know if I'd say an Oscar snub either, but I kind of wish that there, he had been more in the conversation that year because I just think this is such a great performance. And this is such a performance that if it doesn't work, then the movie completely falls apart. So the fact that this was a hit, that this was a movie that worked for a whole lot of people, I think is a sign that his performance didn't work and that what he was doing was the right thing to do in this movie. Kind of like when they took Best Visual Effects Oscar from the Transformers film that one year because it was 
probably just because it was Michael Bay. Don't you guys kind of feel like there was no way they're going to give any credence oh, to M. Yeah. Night? Because I, I know I've been to a, a, an Oscar ceremony. They're really fun to go to. In fact, it was this year that I went. They're really fun to go to. But there's a real ass kiss fest thing going on with them. And sure. there was no way they're going to give M. Night the credit that I agree with you guys that this part pretty much deserved. You know, I'm not too familiar with McAvoy. The only things I'd seen him in prior to uh, this, of course, X-Men. And there was a movie called Wanted that I thought he kind of was kind of a good standout in. Not a very good movie, but... He, no, but he's good. But he's yeah. terrible fucking... Yeah, it, it's not good at all, but he was fun in it. And uh, he was in another one that I remember called Starter for 10 from, I think it was like 05, 06, around that time. And it's a little romantic comedy. It's a, it's a fun little film, and I think he's very good in it. I think you're exactly right, Mike. I think he's able to jump in the sandbox and actually have fun with this part that we've never seen before. And I'm with you guys. I think he's very good in this movie. So Joy is the first to notice him. And after her friends say that he has the wrong car, he lunges for them. And man, those eyes as he lunges for the camera are just terrifying. And we have our setup after some opening credits that you just don't see cool anymore. Cool credits. Yeah, I was going to say, we don't see these credits. We don't see opening credits anymore. And this is a nice set of credits. I agree with you, Mike. Kind of Saul Bass, Hitchcockian. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, well, and the score, it's almost like Carpenter-esque. Yeah. yeah good. There's, there's synthesizer in it and a lot of violins. So uh, all in all, it's, it definitely adds to the horror aesthetic that I think he's going for. Yeah, and towards the end, we do get some of Newton Howard's themes from uh, Unbreakable 2. We see the girls waking up in a basement of some sorts, and one of them is asking about her dad. The door opens, and there's McAvoy again, sitting down with glasses on and pointing at a girl saying he chooses her first. As he grabs her, Casey tells her to pee on herself, and McAvoy brings her back in frustration, and the girl says he wanted her to dance for him. This was kind of, A, it's pretty clever on this character's part. You don't see these kind of smarts in people being abducted in these movies, and I did read that this is a technique that is taught to girls in self-defense classes and such. These people who abduct them, they want them for their vanity. They want them because of, you know, for lack of a better term, how hot and pretty they are, and if you dirty yourself up like that, it really turns them off, and it can really get them away. I thought this was very clever. Yeah, it's a way to mark the Undertaker character from the beginning as being sort of the one who has an understanding of the situation in in a way, and that's of course going to become key at the end of the film. Yeah, and her parental upbringing has a lot of survivalist components, so it makes sense that she has this. You know, this isn't one of those instances where I'm sitting there saying, "How does she know all this? Did she read the the, the Girl Scout handbook or whatever?" Mm -hmm. But nope. No, we'll, we'll definitely learn where she finds this stuff out. Casey is crying and seems to be thinking of something. And this is when we get a flashback to her uncle talking about buck fever. I have to say, guys, we're only 10 minutes in, but I really like what M. Night is setting up here. Um, This is, this is one element of the film that I kind of go back and forth on what I think about it. I think that he begins setting it up well. There are some aspects of what he does with these flashbacks that I'm not so sure were the best but i think i don't know it's hard to do because horror movies kind of inherently deal with like the taboo stuff that makes people uncomfortable stuff that should make them uncomfortable and and the parts of our own sort of psyche that we don't want to acknowledge and everything like that or the parts of other people's traumas or our own traumas that we don't want to acknowledge so this film not just with what goes on with the Anya Taylor-Joy character and her history of abuse and everything but also with James McAvoy's character and his mental illness and everything like that I know some people reacted strongly to both of those elements they found some aspects of the portrayal offensive or just 
in that it was inaccurate or exploitative or anything like that. I can understand those criticisms, and in some way, I'm very sympathetic to it. I, I do think that as a horror film, it kind of naturally is going to operate in, in that kind of element of extreme discomfort, but whether or not everything in the Casey flashbacks works is kind of a different question. I don't know if I should totally get into that here or wait till later or not, but... My biggest question, once the movie began, is, as I discussed at Lady in the Water, Shyamalan doesn't seem to possess much in the way of self-awareness between that and the happening. So I was really worried when they started bringing up dissociative identity disorder and obviously sexual abuse by a relative for both of your main characters, well, one having it, one having a mental disorder, I was really concerned that Shyamalan was going to do something in the way that more of I am Sam of mental illness Mm. versus a good depiction. I thought it was going to be just utterly reprehensible. But uh, for the most part, I think it's, and from, from what I know, which is very little, on the subject. He's pretty on point with a lot of components of the idea. I think the only thing he kind of stretches a bit is the wardrobe changes. But that that's just to express to your audience that it's a new person. It's like another another hint for them to follow along. And it's also kind of a red herring in a way. The DID stuff is kind of... It's not like it's irrelevant by any means, but it, it, there's something about it that's kind of a red herring, which is that it's not really the big deal isn't really that he has multiple personalities, it's that he has superpowers. So it's yeah. Like, you know, that's kind of the bigger, but they kind of, I think that's a, him doing that on purpose. I think he's kind of trying to set you off your, he does what a, a lot of good horror movies do, which is has the audience guessing whether what they're watching is supernatural or whether there's a quote rational unquote explanation for it. Ironically, this week I also rewatched a movie I hadn't seen in years called Rain Man from uh, the late 80s with Tom Cruise and Dustin Hoffman. And back then they had Dustin Hoffman playing this character with autism. And we didn't really know too much about autism back then. And it kind of, I don't want to say open the doors, but people kind of started paying attention right after that movie. And now mm-hmm. there are a lot of programs dedicated to, you know, I have friends who have autistic kids and it can be a struggle. Now there are programs that really help you deal with that. I think M. Nice kind of, let's not forget his wife is a certified psychologist. So I think he has a little bit of waters to kind of stick his toe in that he kind of knows. But you're right, Matt. There was a point, and we'll get to it later, where I kind of thought he was going to go exploitive with this, but I don't think he really does. And I think Matt or Mike is absolutely right, where he just walks that line, and he, he knows that we know, and he's trying to make us kind of think, is he going to go too far? Is he not going to go too far? And I think he, throughout the course of this movie, I think he walks it pretty well. We cut to Dr. Fletcher. Hmm, is this a cuckoo's nest homage? I think so. Oh, I hadn't even thought about yeah. that, but you're right. Doctor, she's Dr. Fletcher slash Dr. Loomis, you know, it's yeah. Shrink st- trying to stop their patient before they go off the deep end. Yeah, she's walking into her house. Uh, she sees that an abduction has occurred. So I think at this point, she's already starting to think that she knows who has done this. And by the way, Betty Buckley, thank God you have revived yourself after sticking your head through a window in The Happening. Uh, <laughs> I like seeing you here, miss. I like her a lot in this movie. She is good, yeah. And she has to carry parts of this film, like, as a kind of... There's really not a term, at least in English, that I'm aware of, for, like, a character who is not a lead in the film, but is kind of a point-of-view character for certain portions when they're in the movie and the actual lead is not in those scenes. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, where she, she kind of has to play that part if she carries it well. Yeah, a psychiatrist and a, and a thriller who genuinely cares about her patients. Usually you get the Nurse Ratchet ones, or you get the Dr. Loomis ones who are borderline criminally insane after a certain point. 
where they just kill each other. She's in the Ben Kingsley and Shutter Island mode. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. We see the girls talking about how they are angry at how they are committing quote unquote victim shit. And Casey is looking down, saying that she saw him handle Marsha like she weighed nothing. And everything they read about how to get out of this situation isn't going to help them very much. So she knows something is up other than a regular abduction. And I think Joy does a very good job of conveying all the things going through this character's mind. She seems extremely distracted. And she does a marvelous job of just kind of looking down and telling us that, yeah, she is distracted. And there's something else going on in her head other than what's going on with her. Definitely. And that's kind of really key in this film is, you know, McAvoy's characters are so um, expressive. You know what I mean? Yeah. They're so uh, getting, getting, letting people know really what they're thinking, what they're doing. They have this great plan, the beast and the horde and everything like that. And then Anya Taylor-Joy, she's got to be so understated that it really works as a, as a kind of a pairing, the two of them, mm-hmm. as a, a connection there, predator and prey, victim and, and villain. We see another flashback of Casey going hunting with her dad, with him saying that females are smarter than males and that boys just make too much noise. We see Barry show up to his doctor appointment as a different personality, one of a fashion designer apparently, and we learn that he is a model employee being the most consistent at his job. She asks what else is going on, as if she knows that he's the one who committed the abduction that she saw earlier on the news, and he just kind of brushes this off. She asks if something has happened and if he wanted his sketches back, and then we cut to Dr. Fletcher watching Wheel of Fortune with her friend who yells at a contestant for using her thumbs while spinning the wheel. I thought this was actually, we've mentioned in past podcasts, boys, that when M. Night tries for comedy, me and Mike liked the majority of the comedy that was in The Visit last week. But for the most part, he doesn't really do comedy that well. Here, Mike, you mentioned that there's not too much comedy in this. I was actually kind of cackling at this because I've been to my grandmother's house and they used to watch these Wheel of Fortune and Jeopardy and they would always yell at the screen. I thought this was kind of funny stuff. Yeah, this is better than something that will happen later that we'll probably acknowledge. But (laughs) he couldn't resist, but we'll get to that. Uh Uh-huh, definitely. Meanwhile, the girls look outside their room and think that there's a woman there when it is indeed another one of McAvoy's personalities, Patricia. Now, multi-personality disorder. We've seen M. Night try to do mental illness in the past to varying degrees of success. Um, (laughs) I think we can agree that last week was his best attempt. How do we feel he handles this one? Mike, you kind of touched on it, but kind of stretch that out. Or actually, Matt, you go first with this. How do you think he handles the mental illness in this as opposed to, let's say, uh, The Village? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, I should have. I need to apologize to Sean Penn because I I think I understand the worst example, uh, I think the village might be the worst yeah. in Tolosti. So, so obviously anything would be better than that. And I think there's a lot of really good work here, but it also depends on how you define acting. If you're one of those people who judges it based on expressiveness and quote unquote how much of it they do, this might be the greatest performance you've ever seen in the history of movies. But if you're pickier, there is a lot of camp in this movie. And I think this and The Visit sort of reminded me that Shyamalan should just make B-movies for the rest of his life, but intentional B-movies in the way that The Happening was not. The Visit, very simple conceit. This one is even more of stuff we've seen. Girls locked in a basement with a madman, and how did they get out? So, all in all, I think that Shyamalan and McAvoy, they're really a team in this movie, because without McAvoy, this thing falls apart. And without Shyamalan, of all people, this would just be like Will Ferrell, just improv for 100 minutes, like in his Adam McKay movies, where it's just, there's no flow, there's no structure. 
Well, I thought sort of okay. So if we're if we're talking about how the kind of the, the mental illness is is portrayed here and everything, I mean, first of all, there's like the question of like if, if DID even exists. Like some people, there's some experts who are like it's not even an actual thing. This is sort of the thing that I I kind of go back to. I feel like a lot of times when it comes to horror movies and the way that they portray mental illness or insanity or madness, if you're yeah. talking about the older ones, it can be a way that's very inaccurate and is very, can in theory perpetuate sort of harmful ideas about what all that means and everything like that. And that is something I think you hear a lot of these days in terms of people are more vocal these days about expressing their problems with the way something's portrayed if they think it it could have negative effects in the real world and everything, which is cool. But I think that the weird thing about horror movies is that, sort of like what I was talking about earlier, is that they're kind of inherently sort of both reactionary and subversive in that they deal with the parts that we don't like to acknowledge. So in doing so, they both get into what's paranoid and fearful in us, but also what's kind of hopeful and is, is, is willing to break down sort of the walls and barriers that sort of separate people. And I think that here, obviously, if anybody's watching this and they're thinking that they're seeing any kind of actual, honest, accurate depiction of dissociative identity disorder or any kind of mental illness, they're completely wrong. But it's also, they're so wrong that it's almost not mm-hmm. worth considering. It's like, it's sort of like, well, you... Anyone who would see this and think that it's instructive in any way is just so wrong that you can't blame the movie for not reaching them. That's the way I feel about that. I, I understand that some people might feel differently, but that's where I land on these sort of things. I'm, sort, I'm, I'm a little bit of a, a kind of, not who cares, but just sort of like everything has its own place, and that includes horror movies. We see Karen talking about mood disorders, saying that body chemistry has changed with their thoughts. Casey wakes up and M. Night uses her perspective, which I thought was kind of clever. And this was when we meet nine-year-old Hedwig, who warns the girls that someone is coming for them and that they are not going to like it. The non-sequiturs are actually pretty funny. Yeah, I, I agree with that. Matt, you mentioned a few of the personalities that you did like. You didn't mention Hedwig in that. Is this one of the ones that you don't like? It's not that I don't like it. I think he's overused. Because there comes a point where he only gets this much screen time to justify him being the one that's manipulated by Casey later on. Because he's perpetually nine. I have a lot to say about Hedwig in general, but I kind of have to save that for a future discussion. But yeah, it's good. But this is the only one that feels like McAvoy just doing an impression. That voice. Mm-hmm. Uh, God, there's a scene later on that makes me laugh, but I don't know if it's intentional or, or not. This is really one of the only ones that doesn't 100% gel for me. I can feel that. I think that what makes it work, because it is, it, it's not a super convincing voice or anything like that, but I think what makes it work, at least for me, is that out of the main kind of personalities that we see, we see Barry, yeah, and the he's... One, the ones he's, that share the light, as they call yeah, it. Yeah, we see Barry, and he's the one who's probably the most sort of normal of them, and you see Patricia, and she's this kind of like elegant but strict British lady, and you see Dennis, and he's this kind of tough guy, but he's also a a germ freak and everything like that. They're all very in control, and they're all very, they have a plan, they're acting on it, and they're sort of in control, and that's why they're able to do what they do. Hedwig is the only one of those who is unpredictable in a way, and there's a scene later that we'll get to that I think is really great that is based entirely on that idea. So having a personality like that 
where you don't exactly know what he's going to do because he's, he's kind of a wild card. He's got, he's, I guess, got the mind of a child, but he's really got the mind of a weird child, I guess is the idea. But yeah. that puts an unpredictable element into the film that I think is, is really helpful in a, in a horror movie like this. Casey points out that he said something about making the room safe, and she thinks it has to do with the brand new drywall. They knock a hole in it, and I have to say, M. Night is putting together quite a little suspenseful scene here. I do like, oh, he's at the door, and he's like, what are you guys doing in there? And they're knocking this hole out. We haven't said much in the way of tenseness when it comes to M. Night, at least not for at least a few movies. I think he's putting together quite a tense little movie here. I think he absolutely is. This is the most claustrophobic movie he's ever made. And I think he does that pretty well. Hedwig approaches the door asking what they're doing, and Casey pulls her away into the air ducts. She drops down and is running and hiding in a locker before Barry finds her, asks her to step outside and remove her sweater. At this point, we know this character is disturbed. We know he supposedly has a variety of personalities. But what I think M. Night does a pretty good job of is keeping the suspense of whether he actually has what he has or if he's just a downright scary predator who is quote-unquote pretending to be what he says he is. That's kind of my outlook as I'm watching this movie, guys, is does he really have all these personalities or is he just kind of pretending just to kind of throw these girls off. When it comes to M. Night, you're always on edge. You know, you never know exactly where he's going with this. And I didn't know any of the twists or anything. I knew about the Bruce Willis cameo at the end. That's the only thing I knew about this movie going in. So I don't know if this guy's pretending or what. So Barry tells the other girls that for now on, Claire will be kept separate and for them to take off their sweaters and skirts. Meanwhile, Fletcher is on a Skype conference about identity disorder, where there are times when one is allergic to bee stings and one personality isn't, asking where the source of supernatural personalities comes from. This is a clever thing that Shyamalan does, where there's detective work being done, but it is being done in a place that is separate from where the action is going on by the outside source. I thought that was a pretty clever way of outlining this stuff. Yeah, I agree, especially since we don't actually know where they are. Exactly. Which is a really great bit of tension there. It's also irrelevant. The location ultimately doesn't matter. Correct. True. But we don't know. But we don't know that. Yeah. Yeah, right. (laughs) We see another session between Fletcher having an unscheduled appointment with Kevin, with her asking who she's talking with now. Fletcher starts saying that she has a feeling she will finally meet the feared Dennis pointing out that he has repeatedly adjusted the chocolate dish. We see Fletcher sitting with this guy who buys his wings at Hooters, played by M. Night Shyamalan himself. We haven't seen M. Night in a cameo in a while. That shows you how confident he was that he was on the upswing. Yeah, that's a good point. Hey, at least he's not writing the story that'll save the world, right, guys? Or do we just not... Want to be, uh, do we not want to be reminded of that? <laughs> they go through the security tapes of Kevin walking through trash without adjusting it. We see another flashback with Casey seeing an animal that has been shot. I can definitely see M. Night building to something, and it definitely has me intrigued. We're going to see that this place is not exactly a house. He's underground, and Casey's seeing little hints that tell us, you know, we're building to something, but the twist in this doesn't really come out of left field, and I'm not even sure it's a twist, really, but he's putting hints that they're not exactly at a house, and they're someplace different. Yeah, yeah, and I don't know if I was expecting anything in specific when I first watched this, but yeah, it's it's a pretty good set. Like, it's a pretty good just feeling, where it's like, you don't feel like this, like you sometimes do in, in like bad horror movies, where you feel like you're in a place that only exists to be a set in a horror movie. But also, it is scary. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. You do feel like there's a story in this place. I like all the lockers with each of the names on them in tape of the different personalities. It it implies a lot. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. I remember uh, sitting at the premiere. uh, There was a writer next to me. And we had been talking over the last couple of days, so we've gotten kind of friendly. He turns to me and goes, you know what the dumbest thing would be? 
if it's revealed that they're on a spaceship and this is a sequel to Signs. And I was like, shut the fuck up before I punch you. There's a twist and a half. <laughs> that would be amazing. Or like they get out and it's the fucking Abe Lincoln Memorial from the Mark Wahlberg Planet of the Apes. With the ape face. That's great. Oh, boy. So McAvoy is going through Casey's hair while telling Marsha to eat a sandwich. They move into the kitchen, and Kevin shoots down the idea of Claire eating with them. The girls start plotting how they can escape. Marsha raises a chair and hits him. Running out, Kevin asks Casey to go to her room and then starts stalking Marsha. In the back of your mind, do you guys ever think that Kevin could kill one of these girls? I was very much, I was afraid for their lives. I thought she was going to get killed off right there after the botch with the chair. Mm-hmm. Problem was, she used a wooden chair instead of one of those, the folding chairs that they use in wrestling matches. If she used that, she would have been down enough to where they could have escaped, but because she used a wooden one from fucking Cardi's. <laughs> <laughs> if it was Pokemon, it'd be not very effective. <laughs> He puts Marsha in a closet, and he then tells Casey that the Beast is coming for them. So this is the first time we are hearing of the Beast. Again, M. Night setting things up pretty well here. Casey wakes up next to Kevin, now Hedwig, who is still hyping up the Beast, and she agrees to be kissed by Hedwig. Is this the most awkward kiss in the history of cinema, boys? No. I can can tell you emphatically no, because uh, let's see. Attack of the Clones exists. Oh, yeah. Then, uh, the one between the kid and the FBI agent in Blank Check. Oh. <laughs> ooh, ooh, ooh. Jesus Christ. Can't top it. That's the one. All right. You got me. You guys. <laughs> Where'd you pull that reference out of? Good Lord. I mean, it is on the topic. It's the most, it's the number one. It's like you're going like, oh, what's the best movie about a guy who publishes a newspaper? It's like, well, Citizen Kane. It's like, where'd you get that one? It's like, well, it's the best one. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Well, the, the one in Almost Famous is really awkward. Yeah, that's true. Which one? Oh, when she's, like, passed out? Oh, that's right. Yeah, because they're dancing, and she's all hopped up on Quaaludes. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, I think that wins. Yeah. You know, you mentioned, Matt, that it seems like he's doing an impression of something when he does his head whip voice. You know what I thought of? I thought of Adam Sandler at his most annoying when he's doing this voice. <laughs> 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 oh, God, could you imagine if this was Adam Sandler and James McAvoy? Oh, good Lord. <laughs> and he gets he can he be like Jack and Jill and Bobby Boucher from The Waterboy and Little no, Nicky. That's, that's it. He's The Waterboy. There you that's go. <laughs> Casey starts playing his game, saying that she gets into trouble on purpose so that she can get sent to detention in order to get away from everyone and feel alone. So Shyamalan is kind of putting some character work in here, calling back to the beginning of the movie. It's a good job, helped, of course, by the performers he has saying his lines. I think Joy does a pretty good job here. She's really outlining that there's a reason why M. Night focused on her at the beginning of this film, and the kids pointed out that she's an outsider, and this is her kind of telling us that. She just brings such a great energy. Like, she just knows what she's doing. Yeah, possibly. I mean, like, it's kind of like there's this meme that's going around. I, by the time people listen to this, this meme will be, it'll be like I'm talking about, like, the I Love Lucy episode with the chocolates. It'll be like a classic. <laughs> but uh, it, the, the meme where it's like people will post four different pictures uh, on Twitter of like, an actor in four different roles, and they'll be like, Eric Roberts knows exactly what he was assigned or whatever. You know what I'm yeah, saying? Yeah, I know saying? exactly what It's really about. stupid because it's like, well, yeah, that's his fucking job or whatever. But Anya Taylor-Joy knows what she's doing here. Let me put That's my con- contribution to, to, the, to the meme of the week. We see another session between Fletcher and Barry where she brings up two girls playing a prank on him where they had him put his hand on one of their breasts. We are also getting more info on the Beast 
crawling on walls, holding his body close to surfaces, and his rhinoceros skin, as he's telling her. Shyamalan still has one foot in comic book lore here, doesn't he? All this lore behind this character, this really reminds me of what he was doing in uh, Unbreakable, which obviously this is part of the same universe. You guys know what I'm saying, right? At this point, yeah. we think he's multi-personality, but this Beast character, the more he's kind of outlining him, it's like, okay, we do have a foot in supernatural stuff going on. That's what's so cool about the. It's kind of a bait and switch. It's pretty clever. Like it's it's sort of a sleight of hand sort of thing where you think that he's giving you a psychological horror movie about these girls who are locked up in a bunker with a crazy guy with multiple personalities. What he's actually giving you is basically a supervillain origin story. You don't get that until the end of the movie. That's a fun idea, especially since in this kind of day and age when sort of heroes and villains, they're all kind of marketed to us before the movie ever comes out. Mm -hmm. So it's sort of like we kind of know what we're getting going into it. And it's just sort of like how well we think it's executed. So there's not a lot of surprise, but there is surprise here, I think. There's some calling cards in this movie that sort of foreshadow the ultimate reveal. I didn't call the ending of this movie at all as far as Bruce Willis showing up. The first sign in retrospect was when the psychiatrist is talking to another psychiatrist, and he talks about, like, so you're saying people basically have superpowers. I'm like, okay, I don't think Shyamalan would put that line in unintentionally, so... In the same way that Unbreakable is technically also a supervillain origin story with the Mr. Glass character, this is kind of a the same thing, but it's much more blatant because Casey is not shown to have superpowers. Yeah. McAvoy then changes his voice to sound like Dennis, and he talks about being in the Horde and how they exist to protect Kevin. We then cut to Casey, who Kevin takes to a room, and what is this dance he does? It reminded me of Crispin Glover's dance in Friday the 13th Part 4. Like, <laughs> it was really weird. <laughs> No, oh, there you go. Yeah, that's a good call. I think it seems great. I do too. There's something, you know, I'm gonna use a, I'm gonna use an overused word these days. There's something kind of lynchian about it. it. It's like kind of you stop the movie a little bit to just kind of have something where you you're watching it. You're almost you almost don't know how you're meant to take it. Are you just meant? Are you meant to be freaked out? Are you meant to be laughing? Are you meant to mm. just be kind of letting it sort of wash over you and sort of enjoying it in that sense? And it's just kind of like McAvoy's performance of it is so wild and like the way that he's framed right in dead center of the frame and everything with like a lot of space around him and the way that he approaches the camera I just think it's really good I think it's yeah. really well done by Shyamalan and by McAvoy and I love that the window is in the back and it's like if you're paying attention to that you will figure out what the deal is but if you're if you're if you're distracted by McAvoy it'll take you some time to figure that out I like that the only thing that would have made it more awkward is if Goodbye Horses started playing <laughs> Could you imagine, on the off chance that M. Knight listens to this, which I highly doubt, but if he hears Mike compare him to David Lynch, he's like, yes, that's exactly what I was going for. Lynch and Spielberg. There you go. In this episode. So. <laughs> he's going to send you a tweet. Did you used to write for time, too? <laughs> <laughs> Hedwig takes her to the quote-unquote window, as Mike just outlined, which is a drawing. When she sees it's not a real window, she pleads with Hedwig to help her get out. He responds by giving her a walkie-talkie. I like how McAvoy kind of moves his eyes differently with each new personality he's playing. I think you guys are right. I think he does a pretty good job with this. And I'm not going to say Oscar snub, but he's doing really good, and he's not going as big as I think Phoenix would go. Yeah. Oh, definitely. So Casey grabs the walkie-talkie and starts saying what's going on and that she's been abducted. The person on the other line thinks that it's a prank. 
Even after she begs him to call the police, McAvoy's eyes change again. He grabs the walkie-talkie and walks her to her room, leaving her with the words, Dennis will explain the meaning of this evening. Gotta hand it to Shyamalan. He's got another very good suspenseful scene going on here. Another just very good scene in this pretty good movie so far. Matt, are you having any issues so far? Like, what, what exactly? We're, we're about halfway in. Are, are you having any issues with the movie that we're getting? Or what, what's going on with you at this point? At a fantastic fest, I've been to those festivals. And in that environment, you kind of feel like everything's good because you're a part of it. Now that you have some distance from that, are, are you feeling like we're in a pretty good suspenseful film here? What are you feeling at this point? I'm feeling pretty comfortable because I think the movie does a good job of he's not going crazy with the camera work. He's not trying to put a message in there. He's not doing a blockbuster. Just, you know, this is right up Blumhouse's alley. So I think it's a good, I'm having a great time is a bit of a stretch because so much of it is kind of uncomfortable, but in a good way. Mm-hmm. But I was impressed with what I was seeing in the theater. I was sitting there going, oh, this is far and away his best movie since Unbreakable. There you go. Uh, Mike? Yeah, I mean, the only thing that at this point that I'm kind of like, uh, I don't know about this about, is just that, like, you kind of want to see where it all goes. You know what I'm saying? You're like, yeah. if, this can, if this can stick the landing, then this works. If this botches the landing, then this could be a real, if not a shit show, then just kind of a wasted wasted time. Yeah. yeah. There's that voice in the back of your head going, how is he going to fuck this up? Yeah, that's a, right, yeah. that's a great point, guys. I didn't even think about that, but his resume, as we've gone through it, there's always good ideas in him, but there's this, he finds ways to fuck it up, and you are absolutely right. There's that voice that's just like, God, can you stick this landing? Can you please keep this as good as you're going it right now? Yeah, that's that's a very good point. That the, So not only is he creating a lot of suspense within the movie, he's creating a lot of suspense in, is he going to fuck this up or not? Uh, yeah, I have my own like personalities coming out. Pessimist, <laughs> optimist. <laughs> So Dennis comes back to say she will be in the presence of something greater. We cut to another flashback, this one of Casey with her uncle, who takes off his clothes and asks her to do the same. I'm glad that whatever happened here, Shyamalan doesn't exploit it. Mike, is this the part where you're starting to turn against these flashbacks? How are you feeling about them at this point? I don't think that I would have shot this scene as it is. Let me put it that way. At the same time, there is a level of, I don't know, it's it's hard to talk because it's like, I'm not, I don't think that any subject or any topic should be off limits or anything like that. But is it done the right way here? I don't really know. There's no subject that's more serious than that, you know, exactly. so it's like hard to say that something was really accomplished perfectly or anything like that. I would say that I, this is not how I think I would do it, but at the same time, I don't hold it too much against the film. I don't think that it's done out of malicious intention. I don't think it's done even out of insensitivity, because I do think he is showing some degree of sensitivity by what he's not showing and everything like that. I think he wants to depict the topic without being exploitative. Now, whether that's successful or not, I think is a different question. It's entirely shorthand, and I think that's where the offensiveness can come from. So, so yeah, that, that's my two cents. Okay. So the very next time we see Casey, she has a shotgun pointed at her uncle, and we then see her in current times just struggling with this memory. We then see Fletcher open her email to a bunch of new messages from Barry saying that we need you. Uh, this was very Shining-esque. When you see this message repeated over and over, I was getting kind of Shining vibes from this. So Spielberg, Lynch, <laughs> Kubrick. Kubrick. Oh, boy. All right. <laughs> Here we go. He's them all. Scorsese's coming up next. <laughs> Our Fletcher arrives at Kevin's place and pleads with him to tell her what he needs to tell her. She's led in the building, and he gets her some water. They talk about how she will never stop fighting for him, and she wants him to be honest. He talks about a former patient's DID, 
and her three identities develop sight for her and that the beast is real. The way he explains them is very, shall we say, Incredible Hulkish at this point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's, it's that, it's Jekyll and Hyde, it's oh, yeah. any alternate personality. Good point. Yeah. Fletcher says that they need to discuss this in a proper session and heads towards the bathroom. She sees a lock from the outside door, walks in and sees Claire on the ground. Dennis comes up and Fletcher pleads with him to stop. He then sprays her and takes her to a couch. Another possibility of getting out gets demolished. You know, we didn't mention this. When he abducts these girls at the beginning of this film, he, he has a spray. Is this pepper spray? What exactly is this? <laughs> it's not. It's the shark repellent bat spray. There you it, go. <laughs> Claire and Marsha, they start looking for ways of getting out. As he buys flowers, Shyamalan is once again building suspense on two counts. Will they be able to get out before he gets home and unleashes the beast? Casey finds a computer that's not hooked to the internet, and Marsha grabs a hanger to unlock the door. Meanwhile, Casey starts watching some of Kevin's tapes, and in the final revelation, he says that the Horde obsesses about the ones who haven't suffered, and he doesn't know where they're going to go with it, but it scares him. All this right before he takes his shirt off in the shadows, and the beast is finally unleashed. I mean, I think it builds up really well to the introduction of this character, and this could have been very underwhelming. Uh, I think the fact that it works is mostly on McAvoy. I think that Shyamalan's handing him a big sort of task to complete, and he does it. The fact that he has to kind of appear, I guess, but also it's Shyamalan, because, I mean, McAvoy is not a physically intimidating person. I don't think he does not seem very tall. He does not seem very large. He's uh-huh. in good shape in this film, but he's, it's, hard. it's not like he's, you're not watching Schwarzenegger or anything yeah. like that. And yet he's kind of terrifying in sort of the last parts of this film. He's a physical threat. He's, he, and you believe that he can fuck all these people up as, as the beast. It's superhuman, but it's something that's communicated to us. And so uh, Shyamalan should definitely get credit to that. I think, but I think that McAvoy really, makes the bold acting choices that, that make it work. And I, I also want to say that I think that when Anya Taylor-Joy is looking at the different personalities on the computer, how great would it be if one of them was labeled James M and she clicked on it and it was McAvoy, Scottish accent and everything, talking about he was preparing for atonement. <laughs> Although to one-up Mike's joke, given the X-Men connection, I thought the big twist was that her uncle was Brian Singer. Oh, jeez. Good lord. Actually, it doesn't want to work because she's a girl. There you go. You know what I'm liking about these protagonists is that they are not dumb. All of them have a purpose here other than to look pretty and cry for help. That is tough to do in a film like this. And the stuff with the door is really intense stuff. A police dog starts going crazy, and the cop tells him that it's an animal that's roaming around. So the animal instincts are now kicking in. Fletcher wakes up and starts seeing a blur that's happening behind her. And Shyamalan is keeping a lot of the buildup to this final act blurred out to, I'm guessing, keep suspense of it. Right, guys? I mean, he's running around behind the camera in a blur. This is, again, just more good buildup from Shyamalan. Yeah, yeah, completely. Fletcher looks up, and we finally see the beast in all his veined-out glory. He tells her, thank you. And Shyamalan is filming him by only looking at his chest to give him not only a sense of menace, but also the size that Kevin described before. So Shyamalan's getting all the mileage out of this budget that he can, right? I mean, let's not forget, we've mentioned how pretty understated this set is. This He only had a $9 million budget to work with here, guys. Wow, he got so much mileage out of this that when he had $70, $80 million, he fucked up. He really, I mean, really, I mean, this is very impressive for $9 million. It looks great. The special effects are, I don't have any complaints, really. 
about any of them. And it does not seem like a movie that's done. It, it doesn't seem expensive, but it doesn't seem cheap in any way. For $9 million, I mean, shit, he knows how to work on a budget. And a lot of directors who get to his level of fame, at a certain point, they don't know how to make stuff on a budget anymore. The stuff that I thought was going to look terrible, like him climbing on the wall, and it really played much better than I thought it would. Because, to be honest, I do think the third act kind of stumbles a bit, I'm not going to lie, compared to the first two acts, because it's very atypical with, with this kind of movie. I kind of wanted Shyamalan to go a little bit crazier, and I can't believe I'm saying I that. I can't believe you're now, saying that either. Now, obviously, I don't want him to blow his load and do something like signs where he's, his weakness is water or anything like that. But, you know, it becomes your atypical girl has to escape crazed madman. We've seen this in countless movies. And then the, the reason why he lets her go is so fucking telegraphed. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, we're getting there. So the Beast grabs Fletcher, who does what she can, but this poor woman is just helpless as he bear hugs and breaks her back. Now we know- She should have tapped out. <laughs> now we know that it wasn't talk. Our protagonists are definitely in trouble. Casey finds some keys and walks out of her room and eventually finds Marsha ripped to shreds. For a PG-13 movie, this movie kind of plays as R with how intense it is, but we don't really see any of this stuff, but uh, Shyamalan's yeah. framing it so that it's intense enough so that it looks like it's R. I'm sure the DP didn't have to do much today because only part of her, the top half of her body is kind of darkly lit so you can't see like her insides huh. clearly he's gone through her like midsection so i think the you know the the light work helps maintain that pg-13 yeah i think that's absolutely right he really does walk right up to the line you feel like if, if this is a 76 then a 77 would have gotten him an r i mean i just picked those numbers random but you see what i'm saying like, yeah and i think that that just is a sign of how effective that this film is and the, the use of darkness is great i mean not just in avoiding some of the the real obvious score but like in the part where he's climbing up the walls and, and on the ceiling and he's knocking out the lights and she's firing the shotgun at him. That's a great use of darkness, both to build suspense, but also maybe to hide a little bit of the special effects from maybe mm -hmm. not looking perfect. You know what I mean? And it's just, it's really good. And it's like, at this point in his career, Shyamalan's made so many movies. And even if a lot of them are bad, he does know basically how to make a good movie and and uh, that's what i think he does here i do agree that the third act there there is a bit of a i don't know if it's that the movie's too long exactly it is longer than most of his movies it's close to two hours and for a movie that only has a couple of characters really and is kind of just a locked bunker thriller which you could get out of the way in like 85 minutes you could say that maybe it runs a little long i, I think maybe what it is is that early on in the film even though there's so few characters you have mcavoy with all these different personalities and then when he becomes the beast although it is very effective and compelling and, and it's scary and everything like that you do kind of miss some of those other characters appearing so once she finds claire it's too late for her as well as she's getting gnawed on by the beast Casey finds a piece of paper with Kevin's real name on it, and here's where we get the shot I remembered the most, as you guys have talked about a number of times, the beast walking on the walls. Again, for the budget that he had, I think this comes off okay. He shows just enough of it. Guys, you mentioned the special effects and how they're pretty decent. Let's not forget, this is also the same guy who, in 2002, did signs. And once we finally got the payoff of those special effects, they weren't very good at all. When he teases them in the home videos and such, you're, you're kind of frightened. But then once we see it in full motion, it's like, yeah, you look kind of stupid. So he keeps him in shadows pretty well here. Mike, that was a big sigh. Are you disagreeing? No, no, it was a laugh. I, I oh. thought it was funny that the way you described it. So we get a flashback to Kevin getting, I'm guessing, abused by his mom. He emerges from his room asking Casey who she is and if he hurt her. He says he doesn't remember a thing. 
He tells her about a shotgun he has in the house and asks her to kill him. He has a temporary transformation of a smart personality of facts named Jade that Matt actually put me in mind of the gremlin Tony Randall voiced in Gremlins 2 called Brain <laughs> that we covered last year. Uh, this was really weird. Mike, are these the stumbling blocks that you're talking about in this third act? No, I, 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 although I do think that the two personalities that he burst out of here, the two good person, uh, Jade and then uh, Orwell, is I don't think they say it out loud, but you see it in the files, which is like this kind of very kind of stereotypical professor figure who's like, of course, when uh, Muhammad's conquest in 1047, it's like he has to just convey the... It's almost like he's doing like an improv class or something like that. It's like, and now you're a professor. And he's just like, do whatever the first thing, which is not, that's, I'm not, I'm not knocking it. I just think that's kind of, movies are fun even when they're like kind of goofy like yeah. that. You know? So it's, it's, it's good. But, um, uh, how great would it be? Cause there's this part where like, he, it's Kevin and he's like, he's like, what, uh, is it still September 2014 or whatever? Uh, which is at this point had been, that was several years in the past. He eventually goes through most of his personalities, and she ends up grabbing the gun and then bolts the room to find the shells. He changes into the beast again, and Shyamalan has turned this into a slasher-type stock sequence, complete with suspenseful music. She's running the halls and is eventually caught by the beast. We know that she's in trouble given what's happened to her friends, so I myself am really fearing for her life at this point. What about you guys? Matt, you talked about the payoff. We're not there yet, but what are you feeling when she's getting stalked here? They do a good job of showing that she's outmatched. Like, I feel like even with a shotgun, she's not 100% on an even keel. So as far as keeping the tension up, I think it's still there. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And it's it's interesting, like we were talking about earlier, the ending is kind of telegraphed in a way. Like, you do kind of understand that, like, the flashbacks and that character's traumas are going to dovetail in with what's going on. And her empathy, which has been there from the beginning of her empathy for, for Kevin and all his personalities and all their sufferings and everything, that's been why she's survived. You know what I mean? That's that's kind of the key. That's why she's the main character in the film. She, she has, because of her past experience, she has that empathetic connection and we basically know that from the beginning. So we know that that's going to play a part in the end, even if we don't necessarily know the exact way that it's going to play out. We know that that's going to, that's going to be the key to what happens. Mm-hmm. Um, so the ending is a little bit telegraphed, but I think that the sort of her with the shotgun, she's trying to fire it. They're in there. She, she gets into the, into the cage and everything like that. And she's got, at the beginning of the movie, she has all these different layers of clothing on. And we know, we know eventually we know the reason why that she's doing that. And, as the film goes on, she kind of slowly loses more and more of them, and they're, they're getting sort of torn. And it's not like a sexual thing or anything like that. It's 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 about sort of stripping the character of mm-hmm. these kind of layers of protection that she's kind of put around herself because of what she, the abuse that she's gone through and everything like that. So she's so vulnerable at the end, and she's got this weapon, and and there's the the tension because of that and everything. And I, I do think that that keeps us from just uh, zoning out, and and because we sort of know how it's going to end. And so I think that that's the right call to make here. By the time she loads the gun. He has left the room. She runs into a dead end, as Mike just pointed out, and points the gun. And in the midst of all this, we find out what the flashbacks have been about. Her father died of a heart attack, and as a result of that, she ended up being taken care of by her abusive uncle. And meanwhile, the beast is now walking the ceiling, taking out lights, and is now in front of her, proclaiming to not be human. She unleashes a few shells on him, which he gets up from, and is about to enter the cell when he sees her cutting marks saying her heart is pure, says rejoice, and then leaves her alone. 
Matt, you've been waiting this entire movie to unleash. Go ahead, sir. What do you think about how this has paid off? Start off by saying it doesn't make me angry. Okay. Uh, th- this is not. I'm not going to unleash. I just think just the fact that it's so telegraphed between that and the, the video he talks about. You know, those who are pure and untouched and like I don't know exactly what the word is. I was also taken aback by the fact that it was not coincidence that he changes into the beast on a train. That okay. was really what set me off with the unbreakable connection. So as far as this reveal, I just think that it's very atypical for, for a lot of these kinds of movies. Because obviously I think it would have been really crass on Shyamalan's part to outright kill him in cold blood. Granted, you could argue it's self-defense, but to kill someone who's obviously a victim in some capacity of his mental disabilities, <laughs> that would have been very controversial, but it's, I'm just not crazy about it. Hmm. I, I know some people, as far as the ending goes, I know some people were sort of outright offended by, I feel like for some people they, they thought that sort of the perspective of the McAvoy character that Anya Taylor-Joy didn't deserve to die because she had suffered and therefore was like more deserving of sort of life or was more sort of uh, knowing of life than people who hadn't suffered and stuff. I think some people kind of took that at face value and kind of took that as being Shyamalan's perspective, which I don't think is the case. I think that really just the point is just that the good guy, or in this case, good girl and the bad guy can relate to each other. Uh, and I think that that works for me. And I think that there's something nice about the film not resolving with an act of violence. There, In theory, I guess I could see why it might seem kind of anticlimactic or especially since there's a sequel hook at the end, like it was kind of a, something kind of cheap about that. But I think that from the beginning of the movie, Damalon is foregrounding Anya Taylor-Joy and her character's kind of journey and her emotional arc. And she does make that arc. She completes that arc at the end of this film. So I think that that is, is, is what works for me. It's, it's a weird ending. I don't know if it works as well as like, I, I talked about how at the beginning of the movie, I was, completely on board and like I got so pumped like just like watching the credits and stuff like that I don't think the ending of the movie is up to that I don't know if I would go so far as to say that it's in any way an underwhelming ending but I don't know if it's totally if the if the landing is completely stuck and that's maybe why I'm not going to give this a 10 out of 10 I've been pretty effusive throughout this episode yeah I mean I was kind of rambling there a little bit but it's a weird ending and it's also kind of not an ending because it does kind of lead into glass although I do think this movie works totally pretty much close to complete on its own other than the fact that he doesn't die at the end or anything like that it's also the the underlying thing of this is a movie that is a B movie. Yeah. And all of a sudden, totally it just feels wrong for a movie that's outright garbage in, in a good kind of way to throw in something like this. You think it's in yeah. bad taste? You think it's in bad taste? Bad taste, no, but it's not outright consistent with the overall tone of the rest of the movie. Gotcha. So Casey's found by somebody roaming the halls. They walk through some tigers, and she's checked by nurses as police ransack Kevin's place. So at this point, we know he's been underground at a zoo the entire time. He used to be a custodian over there. How do you guys feel about this reveal? I think that the guy who's, the, who's like the caretaker or the night guard or whatever, he looks like he's Bruce Willis's stand-in. <laughs> like he's like, or like Bruce Willis if he had never become famous. Yeah. Like, 
from his just his silhouette, you're like, I know that bald head. Uh, but no, it's a different guy. I, I wonder if that was an intentional, if he was wondering if, it's sort of like how at the beginning of Wrath of Khan, they make it seem like Spock is dead, but it's actually just a training exercise. And the reason they did that is because the word that Spock had died already leaked out. And they're like, well, we want to fake people out and think like, oh, he didn't actually die. I wonder if that's, he's like, oh, it's not actually Bruce Willis. That's great. It, it doesn't affect me one way or the other. I'm like, oh, that, that at least that explains why no one could track him. Mm-hmm. I guess he's literally been underground, and that clears up some logistic questions I had about where he was keeping them. So, you know, it, it's fine. It doesn't ruin the movie at all. We hear that Casey's guardian, a.k.a. her uncle, is there, and she obviously doesn't want to go. Could you imagine? She has just gone through a terrible ordeal where she pretty much watched her friends get eaten alive. She barely came out of it unscathed, and now she doesn't even want to go back to this uncle character who emotionally might be an even bigger monster than Kevin was. Pretty harrowing ending for this girl. I mean, I know she shows up next week, don't get me wrong, but it's just, God, you just feel for this person. I think, but I read that last shot of her as her making the decision that she's going to do what it takes. She's going to tell the police or, or whoever. Like, okay. That's how I read it. I understand that there is some ambiguity to it so we don't actually see, but it, that's what I was interpreting from the look on Anya Taylor-Joy's face and the way that the shot is constructed is that she has decided to make the choice uh, to uh, uh, speak out against her user gotcha. because of what she's experienced. Yeah, I read it as this is when she's going to like turn in her uncle. Speaking of Kevin, we see him in a mirror proclaiming to be as big as they thought they were. We also start hearing the unbreakable theme, as he says pretty much the Joker line of wait until they get a load of me in this mirror. (laughs) We get some credits, but this movie isn't over. We cut to a newscast talking about the abduction, even giving Kevin a name, the Horde, before two girls wonder if this guy is as bad as that one crazy guy in a wheelchair that they put away 15 years ago, (laughs) who they also gave a funny name to. When the girls are stumped as to what that name was, we see the reveal of Bruce Willis, who answers their question for them, Mr. Glass. Matt, I want to go to you first, sir. Was there cheering in the theater when this happened? It wasn't hardcore cheering, but there were. you could hear a lot of gasps. You could hear, oh, shit. It definitely took everybody by surprise, but I wouldn't call it ruckus. You know, this wasn't like Midnight Madness yeah. or anything like that. But, but but it was definitely a very it was a very cool uh, thing to to see because nobody saw it coming. I mean, I was pumped. I mean, I had heard for years that Shyamalan had wanted to do a trilogy of unbroken, or excuse me, unbreakable movies, but he couldn't do it because I mean, I. I, for whatever reason. And so I just kind of had written that off and I always, I'd always loved Unbreakable. So seeing him pop up, I mean, that was just fun. And it just seemed like a fun take on this idea of like, if we're going to be doing superhero movies, if we're going to be doing shared universes and everything, why not do an original one? You know what I mean? Why not do something that's not based on a, a book or a comic book or whatever like that? And so I, I had a great time. This scene is kind of silly though. I, I don't, I'm not saying that in a bad way, but just the way that it's written is very like, it's very movie. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like the way that the woman at the at the counter is like, oh, this is kind of like that guy from 15 years ago. It's not. It's not at all like that. Why is she's only bringing that up because she's setting up a movie? You know what I'm saying? It's yeah. Like, it's so it's so inorganic, but it's funny. But I I like it. But and then and of course Bruce Willis showing up is great. You know, and I love that he's so. Um, Relaxed. Yes, exactly. Yeah, right. Exactly. That's one way of putting it. Yeah, and it's like, and the music's so like. It's the it's the score from Unbreakable, uh-huh. and it's like that kind of like it's like this kind of da 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 da. It's like very like kind of fast paced, and it's like it almost feels out of place, 
But when you combine that with Bruce Willis being like, hey, I'm Bruce Willis. It's like, so, this would be so, <laughs> it's the great combo there. I would have loved it if, I, I almost wish that Shyamalan had gone all the way in in the last scene if Bruce Willis had almost turned directly to the camera and went like, here we go again, or something like that. And like, that would have been... That would have been amazing. It's like, I don't know if I brought this up. I've, I've talked about this trailer recently. I don't know if I brought it up on the show. I don't think I did. But have you guys ever seen the trailer for In the Line of Fire? I was just thinking that. When you mentioned that, I was just thinking exactly what you just said. When Clint Eastwood looks at the camera after John Malkovich goes through his, into- his entire spiel, and then he looks at the camera, he pumps his gun, and he goes, that's not going to happen. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. It's so great. It's the best fucking trailer. It's so good. It's awesome. Uh, I kind of wish that Bruce Willis had looked directly in the camera, cocked his coffee cup, (laughs) and gone, that's not going to happen, and cut to black in M. Night Shyamalan film. Or he could have had a, you know, he gets the bill, looks at it, leaves a tip, and goes, on the way out, looks at the waitress and goes, (laughs) <laughs> or like he's he's there to write the he's he's there to do the to write the tip but on the receipt instead of writing uh you know his name or whatever he just writes justice or something like that you're like oh yeah uh, how do you take your eggs over easy with the side of justice all right well <laughs> how would you like your lemonade sir in a glass. <laughs> this totally different score this time. It's before, a guitar score. Before the show, Mike said that he had watched In the Line of Fire, and uh, as soon as he went into that spiel, I knew exactly where you were going with that, sir. <laughs> Very well done. All right. You know, it's been a while since we've had an overly positive review of a Shyamalan film. Yeah, the visit was mostly positive, but uh, Matt ended up pissing in our Cheerios at the end of that podcast, so I want to go ahead. I'm in mighty big suspense here on a scale of 1 to 10. What do we give Split? Matt, sir, you go ahead and go first. I gotta be honest, it wasn't as fun watching this by myself as it was the first time. I don't think I'm ever gonna recapture that, but for all the movie's problems, and I, I say for all, there's really only a couple that I have, but it's a welcome return to form. You know, Shyamalan got rid of all of his bullshit and just made a movie. That sounds like an exponentially low bar, but I think it's shot very well. I think McAvoy really elevates this material. See it for him, absolutely. So, God, scoring Shyamalan movies are always tough. Yeah, um, very much so. I'm, I'm going to go with a seven. I, I don't think it's it's high art, but this is perfect midnight movie madness. This is the kind of movie I love seeing in a theater. Just people reacting, and then there's that sense of bewilderment that comes across everybody at the end. And there's some pretty good thrills, some good scares, pretty awesome camera work, I must say. So there's a lot of good stuff in here. But I can't quite say, you know, I gave Unbreakable an 8, and I don't think it's as good as that or The Sixth Sense. So, yeah, I'm at a 7. All right, 7 out of 10 from Mr. Goudreau. Mike, you've been singing this movie's praises this entire podcast. What, what do you give Split? Uh, so it's interesting you talk about like you're like well I I gave six cents to unbreakable an eight so I can't give this an eight I do agree with that like that makes sense but I'm also giving this an eight which I think is what I gave those two movies I think um it's weird like I feel like this happened on the Michael Mann series too where it's like you kind of like forget how good certain movies are or like you you especially or like early on especially and you might underrate them or like and so your comparative ratings become all like weird and it's like well you gave this a seven out of ten you give this at a nine out of ten but you think that it sounded like you both thought they were both equally good you know so there's something kind of phony about it or whatever but uh i'll say that my personality currently but the current personality that is is inhabiting the light is going to give this movie an eight out of ten just a really good, entertaining, compelling horror movie with two great performances at the center and some 
extremely smart direction by Shyamalan, and it uh, is a, a movie I've been telling people to check out for a couple of years now, and I think that people should check it out now. So eight out of ten. Eight out of ten from Mr. Ganeri. You know. I am more on Matt's side than Mike's side on this. When I initially saw this, I had the same reaction I've had to almost every Shyamalan movie where I was like, eh, it was all right. And then I watched it for that commentary, and I even said on that on that commentary that I was like, eh, it's not one of my favorites, but I think it's okay. Here, watching it with the aftertaste goggles on, I'm watching this, and I'm taking notes, and I'm looking at every single performance. And even the other two girls, you know, we've been singing the praises of McAvoy and Joy, which we should because they're both tremendous in this. But I think the other two girls for being victims, again, like I said earlier in this podcast, I think they're not the typical victims. They're, they're smart. They play their characters up without scre- looking at the camera and screaming as they run away which me and matt did a whole series of podcasts on if you want to go back to the friday 13th and never on elm street shows that we did they're not those types of victims and in that way when i see smart characters doing smart things and still being stuck in these bad situations it really compels me and Shyamalan, god damn i hate to give him as much credit as i am on this podcast but he is doing a tremendous job with tension here he has made a tense film but it's also a film about abduction that's can be classified as a popcorn movie. And I think that's what the transformation at the end of this movie does for me, is it turns this from a semi-serious thriller into kind of a popcorn film. And that is a really tough line to walk. Kudos to him for getting this made. Kudos to him for getting his vision out there. And kudos to him for not letting his vision turn into an ego trip like we've outlined in so many of these podcasts in this series. So on the, on the 1 to 10 scale, I want to go with Matt. I want to give it a 7 as well. I think this is a return to form for Shyamalan. It's definitely not 6 sense levels but i had a much better time with this than i was expecting the presence of mcavoy the presence of joy definitely helps with that score but this is this is a fun film and if you haven't seen it in a while i definitely say give it a shot you know the final stinger is not going to have the same power that it had back then because we know where it's going to go which we'll talk about here in a little bit but other than that it's a very fun film yeah seven out of ten for me all right boys we have two films to go one left that has already been released. Mike, what do you remember about Glass? Um, I remember being so excited for it before it came out. I was pumped. I was like, this is my fucking Avengers. You guys step back. I, this is what I want to see James McAvoy and Bruce Willis and Sam Jackson team up and be seen by Sarah Paulson. This is the inside of my psyche. But then my reaction to the film was more mixed than I had hoped for. Now, I might feel differently this time around. I might like it less. I might like it more. I don't know. We'll see. Oh, my God. I cannot wait for next week's podcast. That's a tremendous buildup. Don't shamble on this up, though. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, Matt, sir, what about you? What do you remember about Glass? I remember the conversations I had with people after the movie was done because there was a – Christian and I had, like, a two-hour conversation about this movie on the, on the drive home that bled into bedtime conversation. So uh, I'm not going to say how I felt about the movie, but – Lady in the Water was my angriest review. I think Glass is the one, if I was actually writing, it would be my longest dissertation about a Shyamalan movie. Yeah, let's let's not forget, when we talked about doing this series previously, you know, this was what the series was going to end on, was Glass, but we were too busy with other things going on at that time in order to uh, dive into it. But I remember coming out of that theater thinking, God, I wish we'd have done that retrospective, because I have a lot to say. But we'll save that for next week. Boys... I appreciate you guys coming with me on this journey. It's been fun going through Shyamalan. We only have two more to go. Mike has lasted through all this, and I appreciate that. It seems like to be the longest retrospective ever, but that's because we've stretched this out over a series of months. But, Mike, you always bring your A-game, sir. I appreciate you coming on. Yeah, I appreciate you being here. 
Thank you. And until next week, there must be limits to what a podcast can become. Thanks, guys. says hi. She says she's sorry for taking the bumblebee pendant. She just likes it a lot. The Binge Movie Aftertaste is produced by Garrett and Matt. Joseph, did you load that gun? You won't get hurt. Elijah was wrong. There's a monster outside my room. Can I have a glass of water? Voice narration done by Adam. You, alone, will follow the road and leave Covington Woods. Edited by Garrett. Maybe people are setting off the plants? What are you saying? That guy was crazy. We have to save them. They're already dead. Send ships, drop those things.
There's um there's lots of visual tension. To whom am I speaking with now? Dr. Fletcher, it's Barry. Today is your coming out party. At least you know what to wear. What? No. I was watching In the Line of Fire earlier, you know, and uh, that's a great film. Weirdly relaxing. It's a good movie. Uh, it's weird though because Clint Eastwood's got a love interest yeah. in it, and that's kind of odd because I think in his best movies he's kind of sexless. Mm-hmm. So it's weird to see him flirting with Rene Russo. Is that who that is? I think it's Rene. Russo. Yeah, that's Rene Russo. Anyway, wow, uh, Matt. I think we found our Dirty Harry companion. Oh, I'd love that. Oh, yeah, sweet. What? No. Just a remarkable feat from a guy whose ego was completely out of control not 10 years before, and now he's able to accomplish this. Got to give the guy credit. You know, and I, and I, I can't think of another... Okay. I was just going to say also... What? No! It's like the one kid on your on your street, even though you don't want to. It's kind of like that. Well, the other girls... Uh, you know, you say uh, that... Go ahead. Okay. I was just going to well, say... You say that <laughs> you don't, we don't know the other ones, but Haley Lou Richardson... Haley Lou Richardson... Richardson uh, from uh, uh, Columbus. What? No. As he grabs her, Marie Joy, I don't even know her character's name. I'm just going to call her <laughs> by her actual Casey. What's that? Casey. Okay. Thank you. As he grabs her, uh, Casey tells. What? No. Barry comes back with cleaning materials and tells the girls that he wants to get them. He wants. Um... Oh, God. I, I, I fucked this I fucked this line up because I I think I typed something very wrong here. Um and they are say uh, he uh, okay, let me go back here. What? No. I don't know if this guy's pretending or what. Well I didn't feel that way at all. Really? Yeah, I'm with Mike. Alright, I guess I'm alone in that. I will swim. You're outvoted, you're off the island. I will to swim to back smoking. to shore. <laughs> yeah, you lost get out of the light. It's, it's our... <laughs> what? No. Again, M. Night Shut setting things up pretty well here. Casey wakes up. There used to be a... Okay. No, go ahead. What were you going to say? Uh, it's not important. Cut that. Okay. <laughs> there you go. Ahead. All right. There's a blooper. What? No. 
of like, an actor in four different roles, and they'll be like, Eric Roberts knows exactly what he was assigned, or whatever. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, I know exactly what It's really about. stupid, because it's like, well, yeah, that's his fucking job, or whatever. But Anya Taylor-Joy knows what she's doing here. Let me put, that's my con- contribution to, to, the, to the meme of the week. I worked with Eric Roberts on two projects, and he is quite a character. Okay, after the recording, I have an Eric Roberts Oh, sweet. I'll have a couple, too. What? No! Uh, which is, at this point had been, that was several years in the past. How great would it have been if, <laughs> like, this is so stupid. I, I apologize for bringing this up. But, like, what if he still thought it was, like, 1999 and he was, like, really into Austin Powers <laughs> and Dr. Evil? <laughs> He's like, are we still saying Shagatelic? Oh, this is going to be the longest blooper reel ever. Uh, <laughs> I don't know how to respond to that. I don't either. You don't have to. You I got nothing. <laughs> Swing away, Meryl. Meryl. Swing away. You've been listening to the Binge Media Podcast Network at BingeMedia.net. Support the show by donating on Patreon at Patreon.com slash BingeMedia. Subscribe to us on iTunes. Follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And don't forget... Shut up! I'm wasted.